Santa Cruz, and this is Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now, a radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. Today's dictum vis-a-vis the pandemic, remember that a light at the end of the tunnel could be an oncoming train. The Case Good Board of Directors and its volunteers mourn and condemn the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, and countless people of color at the hands of police. Systemic and institutionalized racism have no place in our society and must be addressed if we are to live in a strong and resilient community. We affirm that black lives matter. CaseGrid is committed to increasing the diversity of voices within our organization and on our airwaves. We will expand our broadcast platform for meaningful conversations that affirm the right to a safe community for everyone regardless of race, gender, or economic standing. Bringing together diverse perspectives is a core value of K-Squid. We are many voices, one station. Let us all use this opportunity to learn from each other, build our society to benefit all, and heal our nation. My guest today is Kalina Brown, a 2019-2020 Ray Diversity Fellow at the Ocean Conservancy in Santa Cruz. Kalina grew up on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. She's worked with the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center in Belize, the Garifuna Heritage Foundation in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and the Ministry of Finance, Economic Planning, Sustainable Development, and Information Technology for the government of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. She'll be entering the UCSC Coastal Sustainability and Policy Master's Program this coming fall. Kalina, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you, Ronnie, for having me, and thank you to K-Squared listeners for tuning in. I'm really excited to chat with you and to have this opportunity to share my story. So um, why don't you start by telling us what the Ray Fellowship Program is? So the Ray Fellowship, currently in its ongoing, going to be in its fifth year, is a unique um, opportunity specifically for recent undergraduates. So RAY actually is an acronym that stands for Roger Arlena Young, and she was the first African-American female to earn her PhD in zoology. And so she is a sort of inspiration for the fellowship. So what the fellowship is is that it provides a one- to two-year um, opportunity to work with the NGO. Uh, so I currently work with Ocean Conservancy, but there are many other partners, such as NRDC and uh, Point Blue Conservation. So we, they, the Ray Fellowship teams up with these organizations to give opportunities to people of color, young people of color that otherwise wouldn't have had, because there are several barriers, such as uh, cost. You know, when you finish school, you need money, and you know a lot of these uh, opportunities in the conservation field tend to be unpaid, which is not practical. And honestly, one of the things that caught my eye. Also, it provides a community for these, uh, for us, uh, people of color, because within the conservation field, there are very few people that look like me. And that is a barrier in itself 
Like, why would I take part in something that I don't feel like I belong? So basically, the Ray Fellowship provides this awesome opportunity to help further advance uh, diversity within the field. Well, how did you end up in Santa Cruz? Oh, yeah, that was a journey. So after I graduated from the University of Buffalo uh, in 2018 with a bachelor's in environmental geoscience, I decided I didn't want to go directly um, into grad school right after. So I knew I wanted to learn more about my culture, which is the Garifuna people, the indigenous people of the island. And because I was uh, born in Belize, where uh, there's a very strong population of Garifuna people. Um, but I've lived in St. Vincent uh, my whole life. So I knew I wanted to take this opportunity to learn more about my culture, and I did this through the Garifuna Heritage Foundation. And the goal of this foundation is to um, increase education about uh, the Garifuna culture, to promote research, because like many indigenous cultures around the world, we our culture was lost to uh, colonial, colonialization by the all the, the major European countries. We went to the British, the Spanish, the French. And in the end, a lot of our culture was lost. And so what this foundation does is to promote the culture and to bring it back. That's really the goal. And then after I worked with the foundation and I got what I could out of it, I wanted to um, work in policy or learn more about policy. And that's how I ended up working with the government of St. Vincent. And in the government, I worked with the projects department. Uh, as a developing nation, we get a lot of funding from big banks like the World Bank or the Caribbean Development Bank to use um, on different kinds of projects to, to further our development and resilience. So that provided a very excellent opportunity to see how Firstly, it works within the government, and then how you inter how the government interacts with stakeholders at various different levels. For instance, for you work with the fishermen, to you to you work with teachers, and all across the board. So that was like an awesome opportunity. And while I was there, I came across the Ray Fellowship, and it basically ticked off all the boxes. Like I said, it was fully paid. You know, typically internships are like you know, unpaid, like I said, and like short term, so like one to six months. So this is a year, one to two year long fellowship, um, fully paid, and provides excellent opportunities for recent graduates. Because another barrier for young people, okay, for instance, I'm very interested in climate change, and so there's an opportunity to work with Ocean Conservancy's climate team. Um, there was also different position uh, within Ocean Conservancy's communications team that I was also looking at. So there was like different factors that came into play when choosing to work with the climate team. One was location, because it's Santa Cruz with the climate team versus uh, Washington, D.C. with the communications team. And come on, who wouldn't want to live next to the beach? Um, so that played a big role, especially since I grew up near to the beach um, for a majority of my life. And then, like I said, I was very interested in climate change. And so I figured I would have a lot of growth with the climate team, and especially since 
during my undergrad in education, there wasn't a lot of focus on the ocean. So again, this is another opportunity for me to learn about climate change and climate as it relates to the ocean and how they connect. So that's basically how I ended up in Santa Cruz. And, you know, I work with an amazing team here. We, all, we have a small field office, and we also have uh, other members of our climate team working out of our main office in D.C. Um, you know, I, I was um, thinking about this this morning, that, that many of our listeners may not know where St. Vincent and the Grenadines is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was also wondering what, you know, when you were growing up, what got you interested in environmental issues? Um, okay, so St. Vincent is a small Caribbean island, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, because the Grenadines are smaller islands attached to our country. And I think just being near the ocean and being an island, climate change is not a politicized issue. It's a fact, you know. We don't have the luxury of thinking of, oh, climate change may or may not having it's a hoax. No, because it will directly impact us. Um, strengthening hurricanes, that's something that majorly disrupts us. Sea level rise will definitely be something that affects us in the future. So I think just proximity to nature and the ocean and, like, living through these experiences, you know, I've experienced several hurricanes, um, just made it a reality for me. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, my dad bought Al Gore's book, The Inconvenient Truth, and I didn't understand, you know, the concept in it, the concepts in it, but... You know, the, the pictures and the imagery that was used in that book was so, like, powerful that I knew that was something that, that, that was something that stuck with me. And to tell you how much is that I went to university at Buffalo for engineering, actually, and I wasn't happy, I wasn't passionate about it, and I ended up changing majors in my uh, junior year. And as soon as I made that switch to environmental geoscience, it was like, a light bulb turned on in me, and the difference was so stark, and I knew that this was where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what sorts of, of, of research and work are you doing then at the Ocean Conservancy? So when I started out at uh, Ocean Conservancy, because this was my first experience working with uh, NGO of this size and, you know, just getting used to the team. It was a lot of, like, small research briefs, so, like, quick things, like, for instance, if they wanted some quick background on iron fertilization, I'll do the research on that. And then it slowly progressed in, progressed to more in-depth um, briefs. Uh, the next one I did was a, a longer brief, a longer paper, research paper on uh, deep seabed mining, which is an up-and-coming issue um, that is gaining traction, um, you know, which is basically mining, but the deep bed, the deep sea bed. And there are just so many issues with that in that we don't know a lot about the deep ocean, and hence we won't know the effects of what, we, what will happen if we decide to tear up the sea, the sea floor. So that was definitely an interesting piece, and that kind of started this introduction into 
more policy issues and more human effects. Because with deep sea bed mining, there was this issue that caught my attention of um, the country of Papua New Guinea. They uh, invested a lot of money into the potential of deep sea bed mining. And they're a developing country as well. And they ended up losing a majority of their investment because the company that was going to do this mining basically went underground. And you see, a lot of developing countries like my own, you know, we rely on, you know, we're growing. We, we To lose that amount of money um, was so detrimental to their economy. And so as I began to get into more policy issues, the next brief I did was on managed retreat. And this was really where I saw how people um, play into this role of, like, what um, policies are implemented. Because managed retreat, which is basically moving away from hazardous areas in an intentional manner, is a very controversial issue for many reasons. Like, for instance, you know, along the coast, that's where a lot of the, the most expensive homes are. Asking people to give up that investment, it's, it's going to have a lot of backlash. And then not even just from an economic perspective, but from the idea of home, asking someone to move away from their home where they've built communities and built relationships, that is like a psychological issue. So there are many similar things that I've found that I was like, okay, even though theoretically moving away from a hazardous area makes sense, but when it comes to people, there is just like way more um, is complexities to it, you know. So, so for Ocean Conservancy, like I said, I did a lot of research in terms of briefs, and then one of the benefits of uh, being in a race fellowship, they want you to grow and expand. So they provide you an opportunity to ask you, what are you interested in doing and what projects that you're interested in working on? And because of those previous briefs and research that, research that I did, I realized that I, I wanted to learn more about how does justice play into um, the connection between climate change and the ocean? What are the, the justice issues that come out of, come out of that um, nexus? And so that's kind of my main research right now. And then side to, in, in addition to that, I also do some national work within California, so primarily around attending meetings for the Ocean Protection Council, which is, in char- which is the uh, agent, state agency in charge of a lot of the um, policies and laws that um, with that incorporate uh, the marine environment and anything that relates to that. So, for instance, the Coastal Commission is um, under that statute. So learning then how to work with state govern, um, state partners was also uh, providing an excellent opportunity. Um, and then one of my most exciting things, I think, as part of the climate team here was being able to attend a the UN Climate Change Conference in Madrid in December. And that was definitely an eye-opening experience in terms of what is it like at an international level. It was like this mix of emotions of, like, hope, 
you know, because, you know, we had speakers from all around the world. People were sharing this new knowledge and, you know, these experiences. We had, like, speakers like Greta Thunberg and other amazing young um, climate activists that, like, just bring hope. And then I was able to be on the other side of the conference that dealt with negotiations and laws. And that, for me, was kind of a disappointment because, yeah, (laughs) because law, like, it's very cumbersome. And it's so frustrating to be in these meetings and they're arguing over what word to use. And, you know, I understand why it is important for laws you know, specific words have specific meanings, but it just felt so slow, especially in comparison to the other side of the conference hall where there's this excitement and this learning and just, you know, passion for progress. So it was a mix of emotions. I have to tell you that many years, 30 years ago, I attended one of the uh, prep conferences for the UN Convention on Climate Change. I was a, a representative from... Um, Nauru, and that's a long mm. story. But I remember uh, the uh, the tediousness of the negotiations. I, were you there as a representative of of St. Vincent, or did you just happen to sit in on the the negotiate the the meetings? So I think I I, I was I had a very fortunate um, opportunity to be able to represent St. Vincent because that gave uh-huh. me access. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. that gave me access and. You know, I'm in this room with, you know, I think all the countries, and each country has two to four representatives. And, you know, I already could tell I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, in the room. And it's kind of kind of that weird thing where it's like, these, what decisions they're making now will impact my generation and the future generation, yet we have very little say in what, in what they do they do and they come up with, they're like, oh, it's cute that you're being activists over on the other side of the hall, but at this side of the hall where actual change and negotiations are being made, like, there's no young people. Well, some, some of those people have made a career in this, you know, 30-plus 30, 30 years. Um, uh, so uh, you've been doing research, you said, on environmental justice and, and coastal issues. So what what sort of things have you found in that in that research? So I the way I approached the research was looking at it from the people perspective. Like usually you think of it you think, all right, climate change does this, then how does it affect people? So I wanted to switch it around just to make it better for me to understand, like, all right, how are people affected by the drivers and the effects of climate change. So I looked at, or I am looking at, the categories of how are their livelihoods affected, how is their, how are their cultures affected, their health, and looking at it from these uh, top, how are their homes affected. And if you look at, for instance, livelihoods, um, and they communities, frontline communities around the ocean, this is rely on the ocean for, you know, fishing, and that's how they make their livelihoods. And climate change, because of the different effects, can, you know, impact that by 
shifting shifting the fishing um, fish will migrate because the the ocean temperatures will change so it'll, they'll move to a different location spawn in a different location and so that will affect the communities there and then that also affects their food security what I've found in my research is that a lot of all these justice issues are interconnected you can't really look at them as a silo so uh, this is Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now. My guest today is Kalina Brown, a uh, Ray Diversity Fellow at the Ocean Conservancy. A, uh, she's come from the Caribbean island of St. Vincent and is working on various kinds of uh, coastal, ocean and coast issues at the Conservancy and is going into the UCSC Coastal Sustainability and Policy Master's Program this fall. Um, so... You got to Santa Cruz. Well, I suppose you didn't expect, after coming to Santa Cruz, what what was what, what happened in March. Um, and so, uh, but what have you? You know, how have you found the uh, the uh, environment, the diversity environment, and in 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 this region? Well, uh, so be honest. One thing I love, the good thing about being in Santa Cruz and being near the ocean is that there's so many conservation uh, organizations, so many marine science research facilities. That was like this is the place to be for if you're into marine conservation and research. That being said, in terms of diversity, it is very no. There's not much. I attended when I first came here, a lot of events put on by the different organizations, and I was could immediately tell I was one of the youngest in the room, only person of color, uh, a woman. And so that was, and I guess that's the purpose of something like the Ray Fellowship, right? It's to increase diversity within these organizations. But I, I then start to question, like, why? Why am I the only young person of color in the room? And because this is not something I'm used to. Coming from the island, it's a majority black population, so I've never had to ask these questions. And so, like, trying to figure out why is there so little diversity? Well, first of all, the population in Santa Cruz doesn't help in that it's a 4% black one very a very low percentage of black people. So and then even lower are going to be involved in this uh, conservation field. And so what I've been thinking in like in terms of diversity, it is it really starts um it it does start with representation because like I said earlier if if I don't see people like me in the room, it doesn't motivate me. I don't feel like I belong and I fit in. And I think what has helped me through this is definitely finding pockets of communities within Santa Cruz and outside of Santa Cruz via my Ray fellow, my other Ray fellows, because they on they're going through similar things within their respective organizations of being one of the few people of color. And so, by finding community is very important um, when it comes to people of color within this field. Um, so I, I hope, my hope in the future is to become a leader so that other people, other young 
on that upcoming students and people of color see me and like, oh, I could do that because there's very few people I can look up to and like, I want to be like them. Um, so, so you know, have you found have you found biases and barriers in in the work that you've been doing here? I mean, aside from the fact that, as you say, you're young. Have you, as a black woman, have you found that that there are I don't know people people's attitudes are are somehow um, a problem? Luckily, no. For me, um, there's nothing overt. You know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There is definitely microaggressions. Um, you know, the it's the little things that people unconsciously, I hope unconsciously, do. Um, you know, like commenting on my hair or just little things like that. Um, in terms of just like I, I was talking about before, the barrier, one of the barriers, definitely um, representation, and. Often, like organizations who want to be more diverse, they, in my opinion, sometimes do the bare minimum and say, "Well, we we posted a job description, and you know, we put that paragraph that says women and people of color strongly advised to apply, but no one applies." And then uh, the question I'd ask them: Do you just sit back, or do you go out? Do you? send these job descriptions to um, HBCUs, historically black colleges? Do you go where the people are versus sitting back and just hope they come to you? Because if, um, like, people like me, you know, look, Google your organize, someone's organization and see that their leadership is predominantly male and predominantly white, I wouldn't think this is a, an organization for me. So, like, I haven't experienced overt biases, um, um, but the barriers, I think, a lot of the time are also uh, psychological. So I have experienced um, imposter syndrome, you know, feeling like I'm only here because of the color of my skin, feeling I was only selected because I was a woman. And those can really mess with your psyche, like, um, so that's definitely a barrier, like, I may not want to apply to this thing because I feel like, you know, they only want me because as a token. And, you know, that really, really meant, uh, mentally messes with a lot of people of color. Um, and I've had had experience of tokenism, you know, because everyone wants to check that box of diversity. And I'm a young black woman immigrant. I feel like I check a lot of boxes for them. Um, so... We really like also what the Ray Fellowship does is helping us navigate those internal um, issues and like learning how to deal with them and how to how to address them and not sit back and speak up for yourself and just as I said provide community of other other people of color and you know that are going through things like that and just providing hope I think. Um. Oh. I lost my train of thought there. You, you know, um, do, do you think that um, some of this has to do with the, the, the issues and the problems that environmental organizations focus on? Um, or is it, is it more a question then of, you know, outreach and, and trying to bring people in? Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I, 
not not to offend anybody out there in the audience, but you know, not everybody is interested in whales, right? And and whale watching is by and large a sort of a, I guess, a class based experience. So, so do you think it's the issues uh, is is the the problem, or or the um, you know, as you say, these sort of the attitudes and the and the lack of effort. Definitely both, but you do make an, a very good point in that, as I, as I said before, a lot of these issues are connected um, yeah. in that, so I would, like other folks would love to probably care about whales, but that's a luxury when they're trying to just get food on the table. You know, yeah. it's to deal with with a lot of these issues, you have to address other underlying problems, and I think that's what the recent pandemic and the recent Black Lives Matter movement has shown in that how these any extreme event kind of highlights the pre-existing um, cracks in the system, and a lot of those need to be fixed before, you know, you could address other long-term things. But like you, yeah, like you said, it's like, it is a, it's a privileged thing to be able to care about, you know, whales and turtles um, and not have to think about where your next meal is coming from. And and so with, like, the Ray Fellowship, by removing barriers of cost, I probably would not have been able to do this if I had to think about, all right, I just need a job to pay for my student loans. But by, by the Ray Fellowship giving us uh, a good salary, we're able to then think about these things that we care about. So organizations need to, like, um, you know, think about what is preventing people from thinking about, from, I know, caring about these issues that they also, that they so dearly care about. But, yeah. You, you know, you mentioned when we were we communicating you wanted to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, and and I'm wondering, you know, how how what sort of connections would you you make between what you're doing and you know what's going on out there in, in streets in various places? Uh, a lot of well, some of the as I said before, there this underlying issue of systemic racism is then exacerbated by the extreme events. So the, when climate change happens, it affects communities, vulnerable communities, or frontline communities more because they already are struggling with health care. They're already struggling with housing and things like that. So when, like, an extreme event happens, a hurricane, it, they, they, they're, they're, not, they're economically... Um, vulnerable, they're not able to just pick up and move, you know, to their a second home in another place. Right. Similarly, with the current Black Lives Matter movement, the those injustices are again based on systemic and unjust unjust policies that are hundreds of years old, you know, created in a in a time where we were not considered equal. And these underlying issues need to be addressed 
for both the social justice and the climate justice and the environmental justice. A lot of them have the same root causes. Um, and so by, you need, and I think it's, it's really hopeful, like it gives me hope that people are becoming aware of, oh, systemic racism does exist and we need to fix that in order to fix a lot of the related issues you have to attack it at the root. Do you see, uh, what sort of role do you see for yourself in all of this? For me, I enjoy doing research, so uh -huh. um, I want to continue doing that. I think um, there's so much more to do, and, and that's one thing I've found in my recent work is that there is, I think, a gap in specifically to this connection between ocean, climate change, and just related justice issues. So I think my role is to continue doing the research, um, then also um, continuing to uplift the voices of those who have been doing this work for years. Um, and luckily now, because of the recent events, I've been able to get the spotlight and share their work. Um, so to uplift voices, and I think um, that's something our allies can do is, you know, as, and as you're doing, is providing a platform for these, for people to tell their stories um, and to, which will make a, a bigger impact. Um, yeah, I think those are like my two main goals for the future regarding this work. Um, this, uh, well, um, let's take a break here, okay, because uh, I, I think the, the next things I want to ask you are a little bit different. Um, so uh, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and ksqd.org on the Internet. Over to you, Emily. Buddhism, Judaism, Baha'i. Islam, Christianity, Hinduism. Sound interesting? Faith Matters is a unique bi-monthly program that explores spirituality, life, and meaning with local religious leaders. We discuss areas of common ground and also identify distinct differences among diverse spiritual perspectives. Join us on the second and fourth Sunday evening of every month from 6 to 7 as we have thought-provoking conversations about Faith Matters on 90.7 KSQD. and my guest today is Kalina Brown, a Ray Diversity Fellow at the Ocean Conservancy here in Santa Cruz. Uh, we've been talking about uh, structural racism, environmental injustice, uh, and uh, the ocean in particular. Um, but I want to shift a little bit, Kalina, um, because as you mentioned uh, early in the show, uh, you have uh, Garifuna heritage. And you know, I wanted to wonder if you might talk a little bit about who the Garifuna are and, and what their history is and how you're involved in that. So the, the song that was playing before the show was called Watina by Andy Palacio, a late, great Garifuna mu musician. 
Um, and that song really connects with me because it's a song my mom always played for us, you know, as we go to school and stuff like that. And it's in the Garifuna language, which unfortunately I do not speak. But so the Garifuna people are indigenous to the island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. They, you know, were there before Columbus decided to visit. Um, they are a hybrid people of um, another two uh, of the of a indigenous group called the Kalinagos, in which I was named after, uh, the Kalina people. And the Kalinagos intermarried with African slaves that, well, the, the thing about our history and a lot of indigenous cultures is that since a lot of it is oral and not written, there's some um, doubts as to what exactly, how it exactly it went down. But essentially, in indigenous Kalinago people married African slaves, and this hybrid was called the Garifuna people. And so they, you know, lived on the island happily for for a while until um, the British came, and there was a war. And unfortunately, we did lose, did lose that war, and the Garifuna people were then exiled from the island to uh, another island offshore that didn't have running water, didn't really have a lot of vegetation. So essentially, a lot of that um, population died. But those who survived, um, you know, made canoes and made their way from St. Vincent to Central America and settled in different parts of Central America, Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, um, and created communities there. So that's where you find the strongest, strongest communities. And unfortunately, those who remained on the island of St. Vincent, you know, to, um, to work for the British, you know, were not allowed to practice the culture. So a lot of the music, song, dance, um, religion was lost. But it survived um, with those who made it off the island in, and in Central America. And I, I was actually born um, in Belize. Um, and so I was born in Belize but raised in St. Vincent. But I visited um, a lot of my family often in Belize where I still have some connection to the culture and I do want to learn more about it because I feel like the Garifuna people represent this, you know, community of resilient and strong um, people who survived being exiled and made it across the Caribbean Sea in canoes. And, and just, you know, their will to survive was just so strong. And they, they're a... Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day. They are a coastal community, so they rely a lot of their traditional ways of fishing and a lot of their traditional um, meals uh, involve fish. And I was thinking about how would um, sea level rise and climate change affect that culture? Um, and that's something I'm interested in doing more research on in the, in the future in terms of connecting my current work and my 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 culture to to together, and this is why the Garifuna Heritage Foundation was created to kind of bring back that culture 
that was lost back to St. Vincent. Um, and so I really like, I really love that the, what the work that the what work is being done. Um, and every year we celebrate um, uh, uh, National Heroes Month or Heritage Month in March, and you know they hold activities for for a lot of the school children. They hold a, a academic conference um, and, and just uh, cultural activities to kind of celebrate this heritage that we're trying to reclaim and that is just like this powerful, powerful people. There's actually a strong community in L.A., and that's, some, that's somewhere I want to visit soon to kind of connect with them uh, on that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, so you're going to be entering the uh, Coastal Sustainability and, and Policy Master's Program in September, right? Yes, the Coastal Science and Policy Program. Yeah, up here at, at UC Santa Cruz. What what do you hope to accomplish? You know, do you have, I mean, what, what do you plan to do there? So, um, as I said, my undergrad was very uh, technical, and, and it was through my actual work experiences that I started to be introduced to the policy side of things. And I specifically chose this program for several reasons, but one being the policy aspect and to kind of learn the theory behind it, the theory behind what I was experiencing at work. Um, so I definitely wanted to gain more experience on the policy side. Um, on the policy side, then I also chose the Coastal Science and Policy Program because it's unique in that, for a master's program especially, that it is funded, which is very rare. Um, it Similar to the Ray program, it aims to uh, increase diversity with, within, within the field. So they do that again by, you know, removing the barrier of funding. They provide this community of very diverse professionals. Um, so I am friends with the current cohort, and they range from, they come from Peru, they come from Indonesia. Malawi, Kenya, and there's just this, like, mix of people that bring such diverse experiences and diverse ideas, and I was like, I want to be a part of that. And then also the, the director, Anne Kapuczynski, and assistant Sarah, they are also so passionate about justice issues. And, you know, at first, you know, before I met them and interacted with them, I was just, oh, it's just another program. Uh, you know, just wanting students to come and stuff like that, be diverse. But they are so authentic in their goal um, of justice and just increasing diversity. And I, you know, it always starts with the leadership for me. If the leadership is passionate, then I want to be a part of it. And I feel already welcomed as I interact with my future cohort, which I'm super excited about, Um so I basically want to gain the theoretical, um, you know, subject matter experience. And then uh, uh, the way the fellowship is set up, the first year you take regular classes, you know, learn the theory. And then the second year you do basically a, a practicum, you know, like what I'm doing now. You partner with an organization and you implement, you know, practical projects. 
you know, a lot of, like, you know, PhDs, it's a lot of theory and research, and this is definitely more professional, so whatever you're studying will have real-life impact. And I think that is, like, amazing in that you you see the fruits of your labor as it's happening. Whether or not you have a complete project, you'll see, but you will be contributing to, to something that is real and meaningful, and I, that, for me, I have come to value experience and, like, projects and just, you know, hands-on um, experience to, to that's how I've learned in these past few years. So I'm super excited to be a part of the program. Do you, do you have any ideas about what kind of practicum you might do? I yes. So when you apply, you kind of have to give an idea, and I definitely want to continue my work with what I'm doing now in terms of just focus on justice. Um, because one thing I found in my work here with Ocean Conservancy and working in the state of California, um, specifically the Ocean Protection Council, was that there is a passion and there is a, a want to be more diverse. There's a want to have more people who should be at the table at the table. But there's this kind of like this barrier as to how. They don't know how, how do we get the people who should be a part of this here. Um, and so I kind of want to see if I can um, create a framework that answers that dilemma. Like, all right, okay, you want more diverse people. You know, you want, you know, to interact with communities that should be here. This is, here's a guideline of how you should do it. And, but talking to uh, students from the past cohort, this is a very flexible program. You know, you may have one idea, but interacting with other students, interacting with the professors, they were like, well, have you thought about this and have you thought about this other thing? And like I said, the diverse ideas, like, you know what, it, it can completely change. And I've heard, I've heard like, the different experiences of the past um, students. So this is the idea I'm going in with, but I am going to be completely flexible so I don't lock myself into something and that it'll be open to something that could be even bigger and better. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's... Uh... That's not a trick, but but the idea of framing a project when you apply to a program is so that the uh, the admissions committee can see you thought about it and you know how to think about these kinds of things. But now I've yet to hear of a uh, of someone being bound, you know, strictly to what they proposed in their applications. Um, so that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, do you think you're going to go back to St. Vincent after you're finished, or are you going to are you going to stay in the United States to do to do your work in the future? I my thought process right now is I'll go where the work is. So uh. um, yeah, I'm not really. I'd love to in in eventually end up, if not specifically in St. Vincent, somewhere in the Caribbean, because I also have connections to Belize as well. Um, so to somehow you know, link my, you know, use my connections here in a developed country to help out a developing country. Because, um, to be honest, you know, it, developing countries, in terms of specifically in terms of climate change, we we can sadly only focus on adaptation because our mitigation um, efforts are very going to make a very small impact. And so we're limited to thinking about adaptations. I feel like if I can you know, 
do something that impacts mitigation here in a developed country that, you know, is the biggest emission emitter, to then that will, in you know, help not only my country but other small island nations like in the Pacific and things like that. So, but I am flexible, you know, um, I'll go where the most meaningful work is. Well, listen, um, we're at the end of the program. I wish you the best of luck in, in, you know, in, these, uh, in these endeavors and, and look forward to seeing uh, you know, what you end up doing. Um, and I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, as listeners, you can learn more about Kalina and her experiences if you go to the Sustainability Now um, page on the ksqd.org website where there is a description and links to all of the organizations uh, that we've mentioned. Um, and um, so thank you very much. Two weeks from thank today you so on much July 12th. Oh, you're welcome, of course. Two weeks from today on July 12th, my guest will be K-Squid's Len Bea. We're going to have a conversation about sustainable urban planning and in particular reflections on the uh, recent city council's approval of the public library reconstruction, parking, and affordable housing project, uh, which was mentioned uh, in a program a few, a few programs ago. So please join me on Sunday, July 12th from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KSquid 90.7 FM on your dial or on ksquid.org. And I just want to mention that this program will be rebroadcast this coming Tuesday morning from 6 to 7 a.m. And you can hear previous shows now on the Sustainability Now uh, page on the K-Squid website and at tinyurl.com backslash RESD6JB. Coming up on July 26th, Marisha Farnsworth, an environmental artist based in Oakland. August 9th, Dr. Rupa Basu from the Cal Office on Environmental Health Hazards to talk about air pollution, heat exposure, and the effects on childbirth. And on August 23rd, which is the first anniversary of the show, I'm having Kim Stanley Robinson, who is a science fiction author and California futurist, to talk about sustainability after Honest Horribles 2020. So thanks to the uh, engineers in the studio, to uh, Emily and Alex, and everybody else who makes K-Squid work. And until every other Sunday, sustainability now. <laughs>